Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. At the dawn of the radio age in the 1920s, Frederick Duvernay, Anglican bishop and self-declared scientist, announced a psychic channel by which minds could telepathically communicate across distance. Pamela Clausen retells Duvernay's imaginative experiment in her newest book, The Story of Radio Mind, A Missionary's Journey on Indigenous Land. Following DuVernay's journey westward across Canada, Claussen examines how contests over the mediation of stories via photography, maps, printing presses, and radio reveal the spiritual work of colonial settlement. Pamela Claussen is professor in the Department for the Study of Religion at the University of Toronto, and she's here to tell us more about Radio Mind. Hello and welcome to NBIR. Thank you, Hillary. Now, you might not realize it, but this is a momentous interview. It's an anniversary of sorts, because this is exactly four years ago in 2014 that we spoke about your previous book, Spirits of Protestantism, which was my first NBIR podcast. So this is actually incredibly important. Everyone should be taking note who's listening to this podcast, momentous. And in some ways, this story that you're telling now is an extension of that earlier project, because DuVernay came up in Spirits of Protestantism too. So tell us a little bit about him and what made you decide to focus on him at greater length. Sure. So um, having encountered him in uh, the Spirits of Protestantism research, uh, I knew that there had to be more of a story behind how this Anglican clergyman came to think about this idea the idea of telepathy in the way that he did, and then came to dub it Radio Mind and write about it so um, enthusiastically and so publicly. Uh, So I dug around in some archives here and there, and uh, I was um, really lucky that an archivist at the Anglican Church Archives in Toronto uh, gave me uh, a copy of a diary he had written uh, when he went to the Rainy River uh, in 1898, which is a Ojibwe territory, Treaty 3 territory. Um, and the, the diary really uh, was a very different voice of DuVernay um, from other sources that I'd read. Uh, in it, he is actually quite open about uh, the challenges of being a missionary on Ojibwe land uh, when many of the Ojibwe uh, men and women that he met wanted to have nothing to do with him and were quite opposed to missionaries coming to their territory and trying to teach their children and build their churches. Uh, And he reflects a lot on on what it's like to be uh, a colonial Christian missionary settler uh, in the late 19th century. So I knew that he was someone who had thought about some of the issues that we might now think of in terms of um, settler colonialism. He, of course, didn't use those words, but he clearly understood Well, he did use the word settler and he did use the word colonial, but he didn't put the two together. Um, So he clearly was uh, was aware of 
indigenous resistance to Christianity, as well as uh, indigenous people um, whom he met who were uh, actually interested in, in what he had to say, and who actually, in some cases, did become missionaries themselves. So I ended up uh, wanting to go to uh, where he had been, uh, a bishop and then an archbishop in Prince Rupert, in what... Uh, people now call, uh, some people now call British Columbia, right in the very northwest corner. So like the next stop is Alaska, basically. Uh, and after a long time of uh, trying to let the church archivist there uh, know that I really wanted to come and see his the materials they had in the archive, they finally, uh, I finally managed to, to find a time that, that would suit their schedule and showed up and was told that there was just one tiny little file about uh, DuVernay. But luckily, I came with two uh, research assistants and uh, we were there for almost a week and as we got to know the archivist a little bit better, we got to, to uh, see more and more of um, the files that he would pick out from the archives as he learned of what we were interested in. And by the end of our trip, um, we had realized that here was an Anglican uh, bishop living in the middle of a very active indigenous uh, land movement, uh, which he knew a lot about and knew well that the um, Niska, the Haida, the Simshin of that area had never ceded their land uh, in a treaty in, in any or, or even uh, signed any treaties uh, with the crown. And he was uh, a really strong uh, opponent of residential schools. So putting all those things together, I realized there was definitely a bigger story I wanted to tell. And that's what the book became. I want to get back to some of those topics in a moment. But as you know, there's a few different ways that one could write a biography. So I mean, one way would be just to trace DuVernay's personal and family history. But you chose to organize the book differently. Did it seem immediately apparent to you how to tell his story? At what point did you come up with the structure for the book? Well, I was long interested in questions of mediation. And of course, you know, when a guy's invented a theory that he calls a radio mind, uh, thinking about media and storytelling through media really comes fairly easily. Um, and then gradually I realized there were a, a whole range of, of different kinds of media that um, shaped the way he engaged with uh, other settlers, other missionaries and indigenous uh, peoples including Indigenous Christians. And so that's slowly where the structure of thinking about um, photography, of thinking about maps in the relationship between missionaries and Indigenous peoples, and thinking about printing presses, which is was one of my most uh, exciting discoveries for me, is thinking about the, the way the printing press worked in relationships between missionaries and uh and the Niska especially, uh, and, and then radio, of course, as the last chapter. But actually, uh, it was when I sort of presented this mediation framework to my editor that he took a look at it. Um, his name's Alan, Alan Thomas. And he said, you know, you could really just tell this as a story. And that really just freed me right up. And I, um, I decided I wanted to really think about it as a story, but also think about um, how the ways we tell stories, the media we use to tell stories, um, really does have a, an important sort of ethical dimension to it and a very significant cultural and 
spiritual dimension to it as well. And that's part of what the, the clash and the forms of inst- understanding that passed between um, missionaries in early 20th century and indigenous peoples. Part of what, what shaped those interactions was the ways they told stories to each other, sometimes understanding each other, sometimes not, sometimes um, resisting uh, each other, and especially on the part of indigenous people, sometimes borrowing uh, forms of Christian and colonial mediation to really argue um, against Christian and Canadian claims to their land, to their souls, to their children, uh, in the case of residential schools as well. That's so interesting that the central concept for the book in terms of storytelling came up at a later stage, because it's also so fundamental to the way that history is told, right, that certain Mm -hmm. histories seem to be, you know, more authoritative, whereas other histories and primarily oral narratives, of course, in the context of Indigenous people in Canada, have been given much less weight as history. And so that central theme that runs throughout the book works on a whole bunch of different levels at once. So you mentioned the Rainy River expedition. And for our readers who haven't yet picked up the book, Duvernay himself came from Quebec, he ended up in Toronto. And the first time before he ends up in British Columbia, or what is today British Columbia, the first time that he really encounters Indigenous people is when he goes to Rainy River. And he's in his 30s at the time, as you you mentioned in the book. And one of the things about the Rainy River trip that so struck me is that he's taking photographs the whole time. So this is the media that you're focused on in that chapter. And yet the photos are not actually available to us today. So for you, how did those photos help express what Duvernay was doing and thinking, what the Ojibwe people he encountered were doing and thinking? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, I will make one tiny correction. In looking at, at his life, I realized, well, actually, I didn't make this realization. One of my research assistants, who just happens to be my daughter, discovered that uh, when he was a teenager, he was tutored by an Inuit man who was in the Eastern townships, was himself training to become, on the way to becoming an Anglican priest, uh, and was DuVernay's tutor, tutor, and ended up becoming DuVernay's brother-in-law. But that's a whole other story you can read. You're right. Um, and in fact, in the, the way that my question was worded originally was the first time that he encountered Indigenous people on their own land. So yes. I should have actually yeah. read the question out yeah, instead yeah, of yeah. paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's partly why the, the biographical became so interesting to me, because there were these relatively unusual twists in this man's life that I thought really, and maybe they're not as, as unusual as, as I might think, but you don't really read about these kinds of twists so much in the lives of an Anglican mm-hmm. clergyman. Mm-hmm. So the question of the photographs, and it was, it was precisely because I didn't actually have any photographs that I came to think so intentionally about what it meant that this uh, missionary, he was at that point, he was kind of a missionary journalist. Uh, he was uh, writing for the uh, Anglican um, Canadian church newspaper, um, the Gleaner, they called it. And he wrote in his diary uh, about trying to take 
photographs of many different people uh, along the Rainy River. Um, so this is a part, the Rainy River is, has long been a very important thoroughfare um, for the Anishinaabe, uh, for other uh, Indigenous peoples. It's also now uh, what is considered to be the border between Canada and the United States. So it's a really got a very rich history, that, that part of the world. And when he's there in 1898, uh, it's, it's post-Treaty 3, there are seven reserves along the river. Uh, and as he goes to different um, reserves, uh, he meets Ojibwe, some Ojibwe people who are very um, interested in what he has to say and others who are clearly not at all interested. He's guided along the way by a, a Cree Anglican missionary named Jeremiah Johnston, and he and Jeremiah uh, travel uh, through these different uh, reserves. At one point, they're traveling by canoe, and he makes sure to bring his big, bulky camera with him. So he really wanted to have his dry plate camera with him at all points because he saw himself as a sort of photographer uh, of sorts. Um, and so at some points, people clearly, and he writes about this, clearly say, no, you can't take my picture. So at one point, he's at one of the reserves where there's less interest in Christian missionaries coming to visit, and he meets uh, with a chief who he calls Chief Greathawk, who uh, has on many occasions asked missionaries to leave and to, to stop trying to proselytize to his people. Uh, and he tries to convince Greathawk to stand for, for a picture, but it act, with this dry plate camera, it takes quite a long time to actually get your uh, the people you're trying to photograph to stay still long enough so you can actually take their picture, just technologically speaking. And as he writes uh, in the diary, you know, Greathawk stood there briefly, and then he moved, and the picture was was ruined. In another occasion, he's uh, Jeremiah Johnston's wife, Mary Johnston, really wants uh, Frederick DuVernay to take a picture of her little boy because she's worried that he's sickly and ill and she's lost uh, several of her children um, to various diseases already at that point. Um, she did have four children uh, on the Rainy River when, when he came to visit. Uh, and so he tries to take a picture of little Sammy uh, sitting by the riverbank and then notes that oh, he probably ruined the film because he'd uh, um, clicked on the shutter too many times and all the pictures were probably ruined. But never mind. Uh, it pleased the mother anyways because she all she wanted was a picture of her child. And, of course, she wasn't going to get to look at it right away because he would have had to take it back and develop it. Um, and so there's a lot of interesting moments where he, on the one hand, really focuses on the importance of documenting people with the camera. On the other hand, notes uh, a Jewish people who are saying, no, you cannot take my picture. Uh, there's a particularly interesting example of that with a, uh, a woman elder um, that I won't get into here, but it's in the book. Uh, and, and he, but then on the other hand, when it doesn't work, he just sort of laughs it off. So it was really exciting uh, when uh, have, we have none of those pictures because either he ruined them or they they were never saved. I think likely they never worked out in the first place. But the Minnesota Historical Archives, uh, Minnesota Hist Historical Society has these amazing archives. And while I was doing research for the chapter, I came across uh, photos they have of Jeremiah Johnston, of Mary Johnston, of her son, Sammy, and her daughters, Beatrice uh, and Isabel. 
and uh, and then later members of their family. And so it was really exciting when I got to actually see them in photographs taken by a completely different photographer, but uh, very close to that same time. And it made me made me realize that it was probably a good thing that I really thought through the diary without the photographs in hand, because I really allowed me to think about what scholars call the photographic encounter, what happens between two people when one person's trying to take a picture of another person, which I think is a, you know, a real encounter still, uh, still today that we can, we can think about and, and learn from. So yeah, have, having the photos and not having the photos um, were both really important parts for me to, to think through what, what photography meant in that encounter. As the title suggests, you're especially interested in the part of DuVernay's life that we already mentioned. So when he went to the West Coast as a bishop in the Anglican Church, and he was in this um, place that the Anglican Church called the Diocese of Caledonia. Take us back to that corner up near Alaska mm-hmm. that you were talking about. What was that place like when he arrived in 1904? Was it similar to the Rainy River? Was it different? Uh, what What was it like for him to be on Indigenous land again, but six years later? In some ways, it's very similar uh, in that a lot of the cities or towns that people might now know of in Northwestern British Columbia were not there. So there was no Prince Rupert in 1904 uh, when he arrived. In another way, it's really fundamentally different in the context of, uh, well, not, maybe not fundamentally different, but but uh, um, importantly different in that there were no treaties uh, in most of British Columbia. When he was uh, at the Rainy River, Treaty 3 had been signed between uh, Ojibwe um leaders and the crown. Now what the crown thought Treaty 3 meant and what the Ojibwe leaders thought Treaty 3 meant was not at all the same thing, even in 1898, but there was no treaty at all in British Columbia. And that really made for uh, a significant, significantly different orientation to what, how the Niska, how the Tsimshin, how the Haida understood their lands, lands that had been mapped, as you say, by the Anglican Church as the Diocese of Caledonia, which is really just a what I call a complete spiritual invention, right, through mapping and naming. It was also uh, different in that, or I guess maybe maybe similar in that there were very uh, you could only access this area through by water. There were no roads. There were no rail lines. Um, but it had been. Uh, he arrives right at the time when. Um, surveyors, uh, colonial surveyors are surveying the land and come to decide that um, there's a a harbor at what is now uh, called Prince Rupert. There's a harbor that's deep enough that it would be the perfect place to be the uh, end point of a northern rail line. So um, the Rainy River territory was also deeply uh, shaped uh, negatively shaped uh, by the expansion of the Canadian Pacific Railway coast to coast um, in the late 19th century. And then the early 20th century, the area that he goes to in the Northwest uh, and on Simpson land becomes, does become the endpoint of a new rail line, the Grand, uh, Grand Trunk um, Pacific uh, Railway. Once the railway arrives in 1913, 1914, uh, the land entirely changes and the settlers come streaming in 
and Duvernay's job changes. So when he gets there, he's uh, sort of the head largely of uh, a number of churches organized by or, or planted by missionaries uh, in the late 19th century, um, missionaries who were largely uh, British uh, men. Um, and there are churches that are focused on indigenous um, communities. Um, and by the time of his death, they had moved, the, the Anglican church in that part of the country has moved, has moved largely from what it called Indian work, their term, uh, to what they came to call white work. So really very racialized categories for what they understood uh, their missionary labor to be. One other medium, and you mentioned how exciting it was to think about this, that was really important in this new location was the printing press or the iron pulpit, as <laughs> one of DuVernay's colleagues, uh, James McCullough, put it. So for listeners who know a little bit less about the importance of publishing in the context of Protestant missions, can you give us a sense of why these presses were viewed as so important, both to folks like DuVernay and James McCullough, but also to other people who are using um, these presses for their own publications and tracts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a really fascinating history of the printing press in um, missionary labor. Uh, missionaries, uh, as we were saying earlier, love to tell stories. Stories are utterly crucial to them being able to do their work still are today, I would say. Um, but if you think about the, the media they used to do their work in the early 20th century, it was largely print. It was newspapers. It was journals. It was the you know Canadian Church Missionary Gleaner, the newspaper that uh, Frederick DuVernay worked for. And then gradually, um, also, photography um, really becomes an important part of this as well. And so... Uh, he, when he, as I said earlier, when he gets to um, northwestern British Columbia, uh, one of the, the most well-known missionaries that he uh, had within his diocese was a guy named uh, James McCullough, uh, who had long worked among the, the Niska uh, in, the Nass, in the Nass River, along the Nass River, uh, which is is really as, as pretty much as far north on the northwest coast that you can get and, and still be in what is now called Canada um, by some. Uh, and so James McCullough was this very, he truly loved to tell stories more often about himself than about other people, but uh, he was a very, very um, active uh, writer. And he brought not one, but two printing presses uh, to the Nass River, to the Niska um, in the um, late 19th century. And as I said earlier, you could only get there by steamer boat or by um, uh, canoe, other, other kinds of water traffic. Uh, so we had to bring these very, very heavy um, printing presses uh, up the river um, by boat. So it was, you know, been quite, it would have been quite an effort. Um, what's so interesting about uh, these two printing presses, there's two because one burns in a fire, which is a quite a story into itself, unto itself that I tell in the book. But he brings the printing presses because he wants to print translations into uh, the Niska language of uh, biblical tracts. He wants to um, write uh, 
primers for uh, learning uh, Niska English um, translation for learning language. So it actually becomes an important um, tool later on in, in uh, language revitalization uh, for the Niska, some of the things he prints. But as with many technologies, you know, he's an older man. He doesn't actually know how to make the printing press work. He just knew he wanted one. And so the people who really help him figure out how it works are the young Niska men. Um, and they are basically printers. They're not even printers apprentices because McCullough didn't really, even really know how to make the machine work himself. So they, together they figure it out. And these Niska uh, printers become utterly central to the the his work in the mission and to um, having anything get printed at all on, on this press. And so I was, it, it was really fascinating when I, when I realized through some of the archival work I did, both in, in the Prince Rupert um, uh, Church and also in the British Columbia archives uh, down in Victoria, that um, these Niska printers, in addition to helping McCullough with his, you know, biblical translations or primers, that sort of thing, were also printing protest tracts against what they called white settlement uh, in the Nass River Valley. Uh, And so you can see this form of mediation is doing, uh, is speaking with many different voices about what it means to be on indigenous land, um, depending on whether you're a Niska printer or you're the missionary. Interestingly about McCullough as well is that he does um, also, together with these Niska printers, produce a, um, a journal, many different journals, but one of them was called Hagaga, and there are a number of interviews that he conducts uh, with uh, Niska chiefs, Niska leaders, about what was called the, the uh, Indian land movement, Indian land question uh, at the time. So those, those sources are really important for thinking about questions of Niska sovereignty even today. A not unrelated question has to do with Duvernay's feelings specifically about residential schools. And that issue, residential schools, will be well known to many of our listeners, especially if they're in Canada. What was his view of the schools? How did this connect to broader conversations that were happening in the diocese of Caledonia? Mm-hmm. So the residential schools in the context of this part of Canada, British Columbia, Niska territory, Samson territory, uh, many different names you can, you can call this land. Um, residential schools were, were basically a church-state alliance in which um, churches ran these schools uh, paid for by the government uh, in which they together tried to assimilate uh, indigenous children uh, to become English-speaking Christian Canadians uh, and to um, sever them from their language, their spiritual traditions, their land, their parents, their grandparents, their families, and as as many people will know, had devastating consequences for generations of uh, Indigenous people and, and continue to have um, uh, devastating consequences. So interestingly, uh, and I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have found, I mean, I would have still found Radio Mind interesting, but I would not have found Frederick Duvernay quite as interesting if I also hadn't read his, come to read his letters and realized that he uh, articulated really from within a few years of arriving uh, in 
what's now called Prince Rupert, a really strong critique of residential schools. He calls them, uh, he calls it a, uh, the, the evils of the residential school. He, he, he names them uh, quite clearly, that basically that indigenous children are taken to these schools and many of them don't return because they die there because of the, uh, the diseases that are spread in these, in these schools and that they're not uh, cared for um, properly. He also says, uh, why would why would the church and government uh, take students away, take these children away from their parents when their parents care for them so well, and their parents want them to go to school uh, close to them? Um, and he uh, regularly uh, shares this perspective with government officials in Ottawa, as well as with church officials uh, in Toronto and elsewhere, and tries to convince um, his colleagues were mostly men uh, at the time uh, by quoting a woman, a mother, an indigenous mother who says, you know, my child might as well be dead if you're taking her away for eight years at a time. And he shares petitions written by um, Haida leaders uh, asking for explaining in in very cogent, clear language why they uh, would like to have um, schools closer to home for their children. They don't understand why the government thinks it's a good idea to rip children away from their from their land, from their families, from their homes. And so he chastises, he berates uh, his colleagues in in the church further east, but they do not listen to him. Interestingly, he did uh, there what there had been an industrial school, which is sort of an earlier different name for a kind of residential school. Um, in uh, close to Prince Rupert that was shut down um, in the early 20th century and uh, there were no uh, other residential schools built uh, uh, in that area during the time when he was uh, was a bishop. I'm not entirely sure that he was the reason for, for that, but uh, it can't have been a, just a coincidence that he was such a harsh critic of, of the schools and that their... Um, there were none in in the area in which he was for which he was responsible as a bishop. So he's living in an area where parents and children are sometimes ripped apart and very far away from each other, and he is also very far away from his own children. This brings us to the bit about Renee's story that really caught your attention initially, which was Radio Mind itself. Mm-hmm. So what is it? How did you piece together this part of DuVernay's story? Mm-hmm. As I said earlier, I, I first uh, came to learn about, or maybe I didn't say this, but I first came to learn about Radio Mind through uh, reading the Canadian Churchman, which was the national Anglican newspaper for much of the 20th century. And I was, was working on that book on healing, and I was going through the Churchman quite diligently to look for any references to healing. And then here was this really unusual uh, voice Frederick DuVernay writing about all kinds of things. He had things to say about the movies and how they were, um, the church could learn from, from what, the, what the movies were to do to young, impressionable brains. And then eventually he starts writing about Radio Mind and his, um, his work with telepathy. And he really truly thought of himself as a, as a psychologist, as a scientist, really breaking new ground um, he was he would do these experiments with his daughter Alice um, 
when he when he first went to um, uh, the diocese of Caledonia, he left his family behind at, at for the first year year about a year, and then they joined him. So he he did have his family close by to him once uh, once he sort of settled in. Uh, they would do these experiments where they would be maybe in different houses, sometimes in different houses, one of them being in Prince Rupert, one of them being in Vancouver, and they would try to communicate by one of them, and they and they switched back and forth. So it wasn't just that the, the daughter was the receiver. Sometimes she would be the sender, which was unusual because in a lot of psychic experiments, it's the woman always who's the one who, who receives, is the passive receiver of, of the um, telepathic or psychic transmission. But in this case, they shared those duties. So they, one of them would relax their mind, prepare themselves to receive the, the thought, and the other would um, concentrate on sending it. And by his account, it's, it's literally a sort of muscular relaxation that allows you to um, sort of receive this spiritual message. So it's a very body-spirit um, uh, collaboration. Uh, and then he, they had this little uh, piece of paper that would have a sort of um, fan image with different letters of the alphabet on it, and they would hold um, a pencil dangling from a string, and wherever it would uh, hit the, the paper, that was the letter that was being sent uh, from the transmitter, the human transmitter. So it was a very slow process of thought transmission. It was like letter by letter. Um, you wouldn't really be able to get a whole, you know, story in there, but that was enough. Um, and, you know, what was so fascinating was, you know, the Montreal newspapers, the Vancouver newspapers, and the church newspapers all published the results of these scientific experiments. So people were clearly interested um, in it in, in some way. So were there some successes? Did Alice manage to communicate something to her father or vice versa? She, she did. And he writes about these successes and uh, they're written up in newspapers as sort of proof of something, right? So, you know, well, you could imagine that some people, I mean, the Anglican church in the early 19, uh, early 1920, um, actually the the Lambeth Conference, which is the sort of international gathering of all of the, the Anglicans around the world, um, the bishops there uh, are, are warning their parishioners against things like psychic research and um, theosophy and other kinds of, you know, sort of spiritual sciences. Um, but here this, you know, archbishop is busy doing it in northwestern British Columbia. So it's really quite an interesting juxtaposition. I'm glad you mentioned that because it does underline that this is not completely idiosyncratic in the sense that in certain ways, Radio Mind was in sync with other kinds of ideas that were circulating amongst liberal Protestants at the time, or, or certainly people who were in and out of circles, such as theosophy and spiritualism. Um, For sure, definitely. I don't think he was a theosophist, and I don't think he was a spiritualist. He really did think of himself. I mean, he, at the same time that he's doing these radio mind experiments, he will tell you that it's you can find it all there in Paul and in you know the letters to Paul, the letters of Paul, and he's you know he he's he roots himself in these Christian scriptures. But at the same time, one of the most 
very most exciting uh, discoveries that I came about came came upon in the course of my research was when I was in that church basement in Prince Rupert in the Anglican archives. My um, research assistants and I finally sort of looked up at this glass bookcase and you know one of those wooden cases that has these glass doors and we asked the archivist oh what's that and he said those are Duvernay's books and sure enough his wife Stella had donated all of his books endowed a library in his name in the the basement of the church of the cathedral that he had helped to build and so we went to the bookshelves and started looking through them. And it was very exciting because some of his books with lots of marginalia were still there, including books by William James, Ari Bergson, um, Charles Richet, who was a, a Nobel Prize winning doctor who himself he wrote books about psychic research and a lot of other really very interesting um uh, books were on those shelves in which he um, writes in the margin like oh this idea of telepathy I had this idea a, a year ago when I did my experiments <laughs> on a radio mind so by reading his marginalia we get to have a little sense of how he was developing his ideas not only through these scientific experiments or this sort of spiritual imagination but through reading what was then the leading psychology of of the mind and and uh, psychic research the the line between psychology and psychic research was less clearly defined as it is now in the early 20th century and he was reading all these guys and he must have been you know ordering those books and getting them shipped out to him and and reading them and i should also say that you know uh, in the last four years of his life he actually experienced a lot of health problems himself uh, and so for much of that time, he was uh, bedridden or couldn't couldn't be wandering around his diocese. And so spent a lot of that time reading, it's clear, from his marginalia. This is good. It puts into perspective any time that I complain about how slow <laughs> Amazon.ca is. <laughs> I should just sort of channel DuVernay and think, you know what? <laughs> it's not so bad. Yeah. There are a lot of people in this book. We've mentioned a number of them, obviously DuVernay, but the Johnstons and McCullough and uh, the Niska printers, Stella and Alice. Who stands out for you as you think about the years that you spent on this project? That's a good question. Certainly, I I wondered a lot about his daughter. Um, I also wondered a lot about a woman, um, a Simpson woman who... uh, featured uh, in his accounts as well. Her name was Odile uh, Morrison. Um, Other people have written about her uh, as well. Her mother was an important uh, midwife uh, in the Simpson community. Uh, She married um, a Hudson's Bay Company um, man, Charles Morrison. Uh, And she was uh, an important... um, you know, a sort of leading figure uh, in his his church. So she became a, an Anglican herself. She also was a, corresp- a correspondent of Franz Boas and um, the anthropologist who also loved to record stories um, from indigenous peoples up and down uh, the coast. So, I mean, anthropologists and missionaries were quite similar in their desire for gathering stories, telling stories, remediating them for different audiences. Um, And of course, anthropologists thought of themselves as much, much better than the missionaries they encountered. Um, But they both had um, 
problematic effects on the indigenous peoples whose stories they were sort of excavating, extracting. Um, but Odile was interesting because she also published some of her own uh, short uh, reflections on storytelling and on uh, Tsimshin proverbs uh, in the um, in a folklore journal, I believe it was the Journal of American Folklore. Um, and I can, I, it was interesting for me to, to think about what, um, so Frederick Duvernay and his wife, Stella had a relationship you know, of friends with Charles Morrison and Odile Morrison. And it was interesting for me to think about how some of, some of the stories that he does tell of indigenous perspectives on, on the land, on, um, on memory, on, on, on how to understand a sort of, uh, I guess what you might call a Simpson, uh, creation story of sorts. Um, he does tell some indigenous narratives and I'm, my speculation is that he, he learned a lot of these narratives through his friendship with Odile Morrison. And so it, be, it becomes really interesting to me to think about what it meant for uh, a missionary to be friends with uh, indigenous men and women uh, in the place where he was living. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's a, a challenging concept for us to, to think about um, today when we're you know, quite aware of the effects uh, that missionaries had uh, on indigenous peoples, on their languages, on their, um, their family relations, their, their territory. But I still think it's worth thinking about what, what friendship could have been uh, and other ways that, that it, it might have developed if, um, I guess if, if Christians and Canadians hadn't been so blind to the uh, importance of what Indigenous stories meant for, for the land and how the land could be um, inhabited and shared. I mean, that's what treaties were were an attempt um, by indigenous peoples to tell to bring together different stories of the land. They are they're understood as sacred agreements, uh, and Canadians historically and the Crown basically read them as contracts as uh, indigenous people giving over their land, which is really not what uh, any uh, indigenous treaty uh, with the Crown really says. So I do think that stories are are really important for the way we understand where we live, how we live on the land, how we treat each other. And it's going back to, to think about um, how stories operated in that those early, early days of settler presence uh, on Indigenous land in, in the Northwest um, can help us uh, think about what they mean today as well. On that note, I wanted to ask you about another and really exciting aspect of this research related to that Rainy River trip. So you've been working with communities along the river. What project have you been undertaking with them working collaboratively with the folks who are still there? Mm-hmm. When I uh, decided I was going to be working more on, on DuVernay, and I, I, it might have even before, been before I decided I was going to write this book, but I had that diary. And as I said earlier, it really spoke to me. It was really um, a very interesting perspective uh, on both on a missionary and on this land. And I, uh, I, I looked up online and saw that the Rainier First Nations, uh, which is uh, still there uh, on their territory, 
um, started something called the Kanachiwanong Historical Center, which is a place where they tell their stories to the world. It's on a very amazingly beautiful piece of, um, of the shore of the, of the, the riverbank, uh, where there are ancient burial mounds. Um, I highly recommend any listeners to go and visit it. It's, it's quite, quite a wonderful space. Um, and they care for that land and they also tell the story of that land, uh, in the historical center. So, uh, I called up the historical center, just sort of out of the blue one day, uh, and ended up speaking with a man named Art Hunter, um, who I'm still working with today on, uh, on on this project, what we now call Story Nations. I brought the, um, the diary to Kenichiwanong and uh, Art and his brother Al Hunter were very um, gracious uh, in welcoming me. And that just started uh, a longer relationship in which I've uh, been bringing students uh, up to uh, Kenichiwanong for uh, a number of years now, probably about six years. Uh, and over the course of those visits, we've started we worked together to, to build a website to kind of remediate the diary, um, both with some historical perspectives on it. We sort of re-annotate some of the, I mean, some of the words he uses are very offensive, calling uh, Ojibwe people heathen, etc. cetera. Um, and so we try to give context for how he was, uh, how for the, for the words that he chose uh, to use in the diary, but also the wider context of Treaty 3 uh, in which he was, was writing. And we use a lot of images. We're working on uh, a lot of different uh, videos to bring into the, the website. And we actually, it's still a very much ongoing project, but we launched it uh, just this past June at Kinachiwanong uh, on the weekend when they have their powwow. And uh, we were very grateful that uh, Art Hunter was there to um, to help us launch it, and uh, an elder named Willie Wilson, who's been really key in helping us learn stories, the stories of uh, Rainy River First Nations today, uh, and how our project, um, you know, is he's been he's been very gracious in sort of welcoming our project uh, into that into that community. So yeah, people can go look at that uh, online and and see um, see what we uh, what we tried to do in a website form and what we're still working on today. And is the URL storynation.com? Uh, it's actually when we uh, were just there, we um, uh, Al and uh, Art helped us to um, uh, bring an Ojibwe name to it as well. Um, it's so it's called uh, Story Nations. Inawin Kawindamowin, so that's an English Anishinaabemowin combination. And the URL is storynations.utoronto.ca. Now, quoting Clausen to Clausen, stories beget more stories. So what are the stories and questions that you're working on now, either with a different project or extensions of this one? Um, I'm definitely uh, still working on the website. Uh, as I've learned, you can finish a book, but you can never finish a website. So that's <laughs> just a word word of warning. Um, but it is really uh, interesting to continue to, to think about that project in, in, in conjunction with um people from Rainy River First Nations. Uh, and then I guess the next project I'm thinking about, which is still really just a twinkle in my eye, so to speak, 
is about gold and gold mining and how the drive for this shiny metal uh, was at once a kind of spiritual desire, a kind of colonial um, land rush of sorts, and why uh, why gold mining, why gold was such powerful metal that it could get people to uproot themselves and travel uh, all around the world, um, especially in in British imperial context, and what what the sort of cosmologies of land were that could convince one kind of people that it was a great idea to to dig up, to um, disembed from the riverbanks, to build more and more equipment to extract gold from the the land uh, and uh, other cosmologies of land, especially indigenous ones that uh, thought about um, that process of extraction quite differently. Um, and what got me there was, you know, that guy, James McCullough, the, the printer, turns out that he was also did a little surveying on the side and staked his own claims. Um, I don't think he ever actually uh, managed to find any gold or copper, which was uh, more common uh, in that part of the world. But miners and missionaries often arrived at on indigenous lands at the same time and saw each other as competitors, but sometimes they actually work together. So that's what first got me thinking about it. But now I'm sort of um, thinking about the, the project in more of a sort of uh, historical way, but also kind of public memory way. Why do we remember gold mining the way we do? Why do parents want to take their children to gold mining heritage parks and actually have them pan for gold? Why have we sort of... Uh, turned gold mining into entertainment and, uh, and fable um, uh, when we know quite well the environmental destruction that, uh, that mining of, of all kinds uh, causes. Um, and how, how do we tell the stories of, of mining to ourselves uh, at a time when, when we know well um, that it has really high costs uh, for the planet and for, and for the people who live on it? That sounds wonderful, both <laughs> historical and also timely. The perfect combination. Well, thank you so much for having come to NBIR to tell us a little bit about Radio Mind. And again, for any listeners, the book is called The Story of Radio Mind, A Missionary's Journey on Indigenous Land, and it's out with the University of Chicago Press. And you should also Google Pamela Clausen, and you can find her website that she's working on collaboratively with the Rainy River Nation. 